Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today about Detroit's big demolition projects in neighborhoods, how the money approved by the city's voters is being spent, and which areas of the city are really benefiting. Bridge Detroit had the story last week, and its reporters will join to discuss. Then we'll talk with Ron French of Bridge, Michigan, about the controversy over a West Michigan library's LGBTQ content and a possible decision to close it down. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So if you live here in the city of Detroit, work here, or play here, you have surely noticed a problem that stares us all directly in the face. Once a city of nearly 2 million people, Detroit now has somewhere around six or 700,000 folks. And that means a lot of emptiness, emptiness in neighborhoods, long stretches of blocks that are strewn with abandoned homes and unattended lots. On the east side and in the neighborhoods of Midwest and Brightmore, these broken homes need to be rehabbed or removed. They are an incredible blight on daily life in this city. But We have been trying for years, decades really, in the city, to deal with that problem. I can remember in the early 1980s, the discussions when Coleman Young was mayor about the early efforts to try to demolish homes after people had left the city. Now, some 40 years later, we still have tens of thousands of empty homes in neighborhoods all across Detroit. The federal government has been helping us since around 2011-12 with some of the demolition uh, through the Treasury Department. We got a lot of money to try to get rid of some of these houses, and it's really had an effect in some places. But only certain neighborhoods qualified for that money, and so there were still big parts of the city that were left out. But in 2020, voters in the city decided to approve $250 million worth of neighborhood improvement bonds to try to deal with about 16,000 properties over five years. The mayor, Mike Duggan, said this would essentially eliminate blight. This was the goal of Proposal N, which was that question on the 2020 ballot. So two years into that program, how's it going? How did Detroit residents feel about the demolition that's taking place? Do they think the city is doing an adequate job with all of this money? And do they feel like it's happening in enough parts of the city? Are there places that are getting less attention than others? Are there places that are getting more? Also, who's getting the work from all of this money? This is a lot of money to spend on demolition in a short period of time. Of course, demolition contractors uh, are among the highest paid here in the city in terms of the cost of what they do and the amount of money that Detroit usually is setting aside for uh, for that purpose. What's actually happening? Who's benefiting? And what is the outlook for the next three years? Reporters Bryce Huffman and Kaylee Licklider have been trying to answer 
those questions. Bryce is a reporter and producer for Bridge Detroit, and Kaylee is a freelance reporter. Together, they wrote a story in Bridge Detroit last week about the $49 million that the city has already spent under Proposal N on demolitions. And Bryce and Kaylee join us now to talk about what they found. Bryce, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. And Kaylee, welcome to Detroit Today for the first time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Bryce, catch us up and talk about this plan for demolishing 16,000 homes, which voters approved in 2020. Where did that come from? And why was that plan what uh, the mayor said we needed uh, to, quote unquote, eliminate blight in Detroit? Yeah. So back in 2019, actually, uh, the first blight bond that Mayor Duggan tried to get through city council actually failed. Um, It failed for a couple of reasons. One, the city had, like you mentioned, already gotten so much federal money to uh, remove blight. um, And then that federal program had a lot of scrutiny on it. Right. So there were two federal convictions in 2019 for bribery and bid rigging. Um, and, and that really hurt the public's trust in the demolition program and, and the process that went into getting contractors to do this demolition work. So in 2019, Duggan really wanted to figure out a way to repackage that and make it better for Detroiters. Um, so he came up with this blight bond, which would put Detroiters on the hook um, for years and years to come to eliminate blight. And now that actually failed in 2019 to get through council. A lot of the reason it failed was um, kind of that scrutiny over the federal program, but also Detroiters wanted more transparency um, in in the contracting process. Detroiters wanted to know where this money was going. Uh, Detroiters also some, you know, thought, yes, blight removal is important, but this is just a lot of money to be devoting to this one thing as opposed to money that could be used to keep people in their homes. So in 2020, uh, Duggan repackaged that uh, and put it back to council under the title Proposal In. And instead, it was to get it on the ballot for the 2020 election. And it passed, but it was still contentious for a lot of the same reasons. One of the reasons it passed was there was uh, kind of a new way to look at it, he he thought anyway. Um, And it was to allow Detroiters to see that we're not just tearing down homes, we're going to stabilize or rehab homes, you know, fix the structures, uh, fix the roofs, close up the windows and and doors that might be left open, all of these things to, you know, save the homes we can and tear down the ones we can't. And that was something that was sort of missing from the federal program, or at least missing from the messaging behind the federal program. So when it went to the ballot in 2020, uh, even though it was contentious getting through city council, it passed by, I think, a 70 to 30 margin or something like that. So uh, it, it had gained some steam, uh, and with a city like Detroit, where there's historically low voter turnout, um, that 70 to 30 margin uh, is, is interesting to, to look at from that lens and yeah. from that perspective. So even though it did pass by a wide margin on the ballot, it was still uh, a little uneasy with some Detroiters trying to you know, wrap their heads around a long-term light bond, you know, after we had already put so much money towards it. Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, and as I said in the open, if you live here in the city, blight is not an abstract idea or notion. Uh, Almost all of us uh, live in neighborhoods where we either have blight on our block. Uh, I'm somebody who has abandoned houses uh, on the block where I live and on the block where uh, I operate a nonprofit in the neighborhood uh, where I was born. Uh, and, and if you don't have one on your block, you've got one around the corner or, or a mile or so away. Uh, talk about, Bryce, this, this idea that, uh, that Detroiters uh, have to live with blight and have lived with blight for you know, 40 or more years and how powerful that was in believing that, look, this blight bond uh, was the was the way to go. Yeah, I, I think even even people who are very um, skeptical of the, the demolition program have to admit blight is an issue that every Detroiter can recognize on its face. Right. And 
there are so many different causes for it, but just the visual of it, the, the psychological impact that has to see decay right next to where you live for decades and decades and decades, um, that is something that Detroiters are sick of and tired of. And quite frankly, a lot of these structures are dangerous. Uh, you know, when I went out with the demolition department looking at some of these houses um, really early on when doing the story, a resident was just pointing out how dangerous some of the structures were, you know, roofs collapsing inwards on themselves and and structures just falling apart. And if you're someone who has kids or, you know, if you're elderly, walking near that isn't safe. Um, not to mention just you know, you want to live somewhere where you, you are proud of where you live and you are happy with the conditions of your neighborhood, especially if you are, you know, a homeowner. Being a homeowner here is expensive and you want to feel like you're getting your dollars worth when you walk outside. And a lot of Detroiters, unfortunately, because there are just so many vacant properties around, can't quite feel that same pride that they wish they could. Yeah. So, uh, Kaylee Licklider, uh, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Talk about uh, what you have found, you and Bryce have found, in terms of where this $49 million that uh, has already been spent of the $250 million, where does it go? If you divide up the pie, uh, what do you see from the picture that emerges? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Bryce and I took a look at how much money was being spent per uh, city council district as well as neighborhood. Um, and what we found was um, it, District 4 had the most uh, demolitions to date. Um, and, and that's an east side district, that's an east side district for people who don't yes, who don't correct. know where the districts are, right? <laughs> um, and then District 7 and District 3 um, were the second highest with District 1 and 2 or districts one and two coming in uh, with the lowest number of demolitions so far. Um, we found that the average cost per demolition was $20,231. Um, Bryce can speak more to um, the neighborhood data. Uh, I don't have that right in front of me, but um, I know he, he has spoken with a number of uh, individuals from the neighborhoods to see what they're seeing in uh, they don't feel like there's enough demolition going on. They don't. They don't really see the impact. So, yeah. Uh, go, go ahead, Bryce. Talk more about uh, what what Detroiters themselves are saying about where this money's being spent and what the effect is. Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting parts of doing the story was just going into some of these neighborhoods and talking to people um, and sharing some of the data that we. Uh, when I say we, I, I really mean Kaylee uh, had discovered. Um, and just talking to people about it and, and getting their uh, their reaction, seeing the looks on their faces when I would tell them, you know, if you live in Maple Ridge, per, you know, for instance, you know, they spent four some million dollars tearing down homes there. And I talked to one woman who just looked from left to right and, you know, could see six blighted properties on her block alone and was like, they've done how many here? I don't see the effect of that. Um, and I think that that kind of signals part of the transparency issue or problem that a lot of Detroiters have. Uh, they don't understand the city's overall plan for doing these demos and, and where they're going to do them next and how they go about choosing what areas are the priority. Um, so a lot of Detroiters, they are just a little bit confused by the whole process and understanding, um, you know, like what... what what's happening in my area? What's the plan for my area when all of these structures are taken down? You know, like, are we just going to build new houses up on them? And, and or, or are there bigger development plans at play here? Um, those are a lot of the questions that I got from residents um, in the different neighborhoods that I went to. Yeah, yeah. And the other side of this issue, of course, is who's getting the money to tear down these houses. And that's been a pretty controversial space in the city for many decades as well. There have been some scandals associated with demolition in the city, both uh, recent scandals and, and long ago ones. I think a lot of people were looking at Proposal N and the $250 million uh, a little askance, saying, well, uh, how, is this, how is this going to play out? So, uh, Kaylee, tell us about uh, the contractors who 
are getting the money here and sort of how they rank and how they compare, um, you know, among each other in terms of uh, uh, who's getting the most and, and, and who's who's getting the least? Yeah, um, so we have uh, SE Environmental uh, was the, the contractor with the most uh, contracts, but the second highest amount at $13.5 million awarded. Um, Guyanga uh, was the second highest uh, with the most amount awarded um, with $18.45 million. Um, I, I think it's it, important to note as well that there's been $100 million in contracts awarded using Prop N funds for demolition alone. Um, there's also only been $6.3 million uh, contracted for stabilizations. So there's a, a huge contrast there. Um, there's uh, $31.7 million has been awarded in uh, mis miscellaneous environmental surveys. Um, data collection was about half of the cost uh, there. Um, but the, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Bryce, uh, put that in, in context in terms of this this narrative in the city about who gets money for demolition and who doesn't. There was concern about city-based corporations uh, having their fair share of, of this money. Uh, there's concern, of course, about uh, African-American-owned businesses. There are some demolition companies that are, are African-American-owned. How does, how does that lens sort of... Uh, look when we think about how we're spending this money right now. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the reasons that um, Prop N eventually did get through council was the mayor realized he had to really talk up kind of the Detroit angle of this, like Detroiters are getting these jobs and Detroit-based companies are getting this money. And he's not entirely wrong, right? So some of these companies do hire uh, quite a good number of Detroiters, but uh, a lot of them aren't really doing that to the level that they, sh they say they are, right? So the city has a, a program where contractors uh, who don't hire at least 51% of Detroiters or uh, the way that they actually break it down is the number of hours worked aren't worked by Detroiters. Um, so 51% of the hours worked on a project uh, if they're not done by Detroiters, a company has to pay into this fund that is supposed to train Detroiters um, for these sorts of jobs, um, for construction jobs, um, for remediation jobs, things like that. And uh, what you'll find is companies who are getting this much money, right? You know, one company gets $18 million, another got 13 another got 11 a couple of them got over $10 million. So when you get that much money, you know, paying into a fund, it's sort of like, you know, breaking the salary cap in the MLB. You know, you pay a little bit of money and then you just go on about your business. And for these companies, um, there's kind of a, a chilling effect a bit. You know, if you have to pay into this fund, that's just part of the cost of doing business. Now, the city kind of goes back and says, well, it's not just paying into the fund, right? It's being, you know, graded on how well you are living up to some of the standards, one of them being hiring Detroiters um, and being based in Detroit. And if you're not meeting that benchmark and you're not meeting those uh, standards, um, you know, you're less likely to get more bids in the future is what they say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a bit like, um, like I said, it's a lot like breaking the salary cap in, in baseball. You know, yes, you have to pay, but some people, they look at it like, well, paying a little bit to get what we want isn't that big a deal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue to hear more about uh, this Bridge Detroit report on Proposal N, the $250 million blight bond that was passed in 2020 by Detroiters. We want to continue to hear from you as well on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us, uh, what, what does this look like in your neighborhood? What does blight look like in your neighborhood in Detroit? 
Uh, are you seeing a difference in the last two years as the city starts to spend this $250 million in a blight bond? Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guests right now are Bryce Huffman, a reporter and producer for Bridge Detroit. He recently co-wrote a new article on Detroit's uh, demolition process after the passage of Proposal N, a $250 million blight bond in 2020. Also with us is Kaylee Licklider. She's a freelance reporter and local documenter. She uh, co-wrote that piece with Bryce on uh, Detroit demolitions. We're talking about what is happening in the city now that there is $250 bucks being spent to take down 16,000 abandoned houses. Uh, what does that look like in different areas of the city? Who's benefiting? Uh, who maybe isn't benefiting as much? Also, who's getting the business here? Uh, the really great contracts that uh, are being let for companies to take down these houses. Uh, give us a call. Let us know what this looks like in your part of Detroit. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll put you uh, on the air that way. Let's start with David in Detroit. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, everybody. Hey. Uh, great topic. Appreciate the research that the team has uh, worked on. But Prop N is not just about demo. It was about restoration of some properties as well. Uh, so in Detroit Dreams Deferred, a report I worked on last year with the University of Michigan, we looked at where the uh, home sales were via mortgages in mm. the city of Detroit mm -hmm. and overlaid that with the Prop N properties that HRD's website had for stabilization, which seems to be currently defined as trash out and board up. So I was wondering if the research team here has looked at what was the other side of the coin for the prop in spending uh, from their perspective more than just taking things down, but what were the city's feedback on uh, how to get some of these properties restored and back into the hands of Detroiters? Yeah, David, great question. And that was an important part of prop and that, as I remember, was one of the sticking points uh, when uh, the council and the mayor were arguing about uh, how to spend this money and, and what to put in front of voters. The, m people wanted more money to be spent on, um, on restoration and, and preservation of some of these properties uh, than, than was initially put out there. Bryce, what, what do we know about that spending so far uh, under Prop N? Yeah, so uh, nearly 1,100 properties so far have been, uh, quote-unquote, stabilized or rehabbed. Um, which, as, as David pointed out, and I appreciate the comment, uh, of course, uh, that really means they they haven't made it move-in ready. Um, anyone who bought it, anyone who buys a stabilized home would still have to put a significant amount of resources into actually making it a livable home. So uh, while the city is doing this work, um, they're still not necessarily making the homes uh available to the average resident, right? Because if you need, let's say, 60000 or more dollars of repair to go in just to make it to the point where you can safely walk in it and, and you know, start the work to do it, um, well, then that makes it not the most accessible home um, for most Detroiters. Uh, the amount of resources you have to put into a house to make it livable and, and thriving uh, you know, that's just not realistic for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, David, really appreciate the call and uh, the question. Let's go next to Cindy in Plymouth. Cindy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Um, my comment is um, 
a little bit different perspective. So I work across the city um, in neighborhoods uh, with Detroiters. And one of the issues that we have encountered on many occasions is the, um, the older demolitions. They would just bury all kinds of debris underground. And so then when you go to try to do something useful with the lot, you, you encounter this, this mess that you didn't expect to find. Or um, another kind of big issue I have with the demos is that everywhere you have seen a house demoed, um, the, the sidewalks are a crumbling mess, mm. almost impassable. Mm. And we know that roughly 40% of Detroiters don't have own a vehicle. So they're, you know, we're ruining the infrastructure as part of the demolition, and they're not restoring that following demolition. And even where you see whole blocks where homes have been demoed, um, you know, they're not going in and in and out from, like, say, one lot where the sidewalk has already been de- destroyed. Yeah. They're just ruining the whole block of sidewalk and, and leaving it. Cindy, that's a that's a really important point to make as well, which is, you know, it fits into the bigger picture, I think, of the effect of demolition on neighborhoods and what what is left behind after you tear down a house. Uh, Kaylee Licklider, I wonder in in the reporting what you heard from Detroiters about demolition and what it's doing in their neighborhoods besides just uh, just taking down houses. Um, honestly, Bryce is going to be the one to answer that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Bryce, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, thank you, Cindy, for that comment. Uh, I actually didn't have anyone talk specifically about the sidewalk issue. Uh, that is something I noticed when I went out to take photos and talk to people, though. Um, the sidewalks in front of some of the areas that had been demolished were, like she said, a crumbling mess. Um, and I didn't know if that was from the demo or abatement work or, or I, I didn't really know what caused that. Um, but I, I, I suspect it might have to do with um, the trucks going over the sidewalk and dragging debris out um, probably had some effect on that. But yeah, a lot of the stuff I heard from Detroiters when I went out, um, they they really wanted to know what the city's overall plan was for their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, a few residents I spoke to uh, on like a two or three block stretch of the Maple Ridge, na- uh, Maple Ridge neighborhood over on uh, Hayes and in, in, in the city's east side, uh, they were concerned that you know, this area had been left to decay for decades, and now they are suddenly interested in fixing it up. Um, they're building new homes, and they repaved uh, Maple Ridge, the street itself, um, I want to say last year or earlier this year. Um, so residents were a bit skeptical. They're like, is this the the beginning phase of maybe gentrification in this area? They didn't know. Uh, I didn't have anything I could tell them other than, you know, <laughs> you're, if you're noticing this trend, uh, you know, just be vigilant about mm-hmm. what you're seeing. Uh, so there is some concern that uh, the effort to demolish a lot of homes in some of these areas is kind of about clearing out what what was left from black Detroiters who, you know, either had property tax foreclosure or uh, had issues not being able to afford home repair Um so there's a lot of skepticism kind of around what's the overall goal um, of clearing out so many homes, what's going to come in, who is going to come in when they're done. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Bryce Huffman and Kaylee Licklider, great work on the story, taking a look at uh, how this $250 million blight bond is being funded or being spent. Uh, and thanks for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, more news in the state of Michigan. This time in the, on the west side of the state, we're going to explore why one town 
voted to defund its own library, a story that fits into the context of some of the culture wars going on about the content that you might find in public libraries. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. When you live in a liberal democracy like ours, freedom of speech and freedom of thought are pretty central ideas. But these days, we are having pretty deep disagreements over what should be expressed, especially in our public spaces. Some of the deepest questions surrounding freedom of speech revolve specifically around gender and sexual orientation. In some southern states, for instance, teachers have been restricted from openly discussing gender and sexual orientation as part of their lesson plans. In South Dakota, a bill was signed this year ensuring that trans students can't participate in a school sport or use a school restroom that is consistent with their gender identity. A similar kind of controversy arose recently here in Michigan. The Patmos Library in Ottawa County was defunded by voters because it had LGBTQ-themed books. That is, Jamestown Township residents are maybe preferring to close their library rather than have LGBTQ-themed books on the shelves. If voters don't come up with more money for the library in November, the library is likely going to close sometime in 2023. To talk about how this controversy arose and why the library was defunded, also how gender is becoming an increasingly polarizing topic in our politics and what this means for freedom of speech, we've got Ron French, who is a senior writer for Bridge Michigan, here with us. Uh, He recently wrote about this controversy uh, in West Michigan. Ron, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Yeah. So uh, let's start with where this all came from. How did people come to be really exercised uh, in this West Michigan town over what was in the library? Sure. Well, it's, 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 something we're seeing, uh, unfortunately, in quite a few libraries now. It's spreading. But what happened here in Jamestown Township, uh, which is uh, uh, obviously on the west side of the state here in in Ottawa County, um, someone noticed in the community that there was a book in the public library uh, by the title of Gender Queer, a memoir. Uh, It's an award-winning book, but but it's, it's, it's a graphic novel. It's a, it's, it's a story of uh, an author's coming of age as non-binary, and it does include some ex- explicit drawings of sex acts. Uh, it, was, it was housed in the adult section, but someone noticed it and said, you know, a kid could pick this up. We're very upset by this. Um, and uh, it sort of spun up the community. Um, it's a very conservative community in a conservative county. And then they started looking around, uh, going on and uh, Googling around for other banned books that have been banned other places and looking to see what was there. They found several other books. Um, it's the point where they, uh, people were being accused, uh, the staff of the library was being accused of, of, uh, of grooming kids. Um, and if, there was just this, this, this is a continuation of a battle uh, that, that never really got resolved. And unfortunately for the library, this is the year they needed to pass. It's uh, a renewal for a, a millage, hmm. uh, a 10-year millage. And there's never been any controversy about those millages in the past there. But with all this controversy surrounding, there was a big vote no campaign, and it lost 62 to 37, almost 2 to 1. People voted, no, we're just going to defund the library rather than have a library with uh, a few LGBT books in it. Yeah. So as you point out, it, it, there's kind of a confluence of, of circumstances here that meant that this millage was was up at the same time this controversy was was taking place is it clear that people in the township 
understood that this would mean closing the library or perhaps closing the library or were they just kind of expressing frustration or displeasure i guess with what uh, with what the library was offering I think it's it's sort of the latter. Um, I, I was there on uh, election day uh, earlier this month and spoke to people who were leaving uh, uh, the precinct um, after they voted. In fact, the precinct, one of the three precincts in the township, was in the library. And I talked to people as they left the library. I was having a hard time finding anyone who voted yes, frankly, Steve. But 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 the, of of the people who voted no. Almost every one of them said, oh, no, the library will never close. We're, we're, we're just letting them know we're unhappy with this. Well, unfortunately, it does have consequences, this vote. You know, I mean, the, the, that funding runs out uh, in January mm-hmm. unless, uh, unless there is a, a revote. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Ron French, uh, senior writer and editor at Bridge, Michigan. Uh, We're talking about a controversy in James Township in western Michigan uh, over the library. Uh, Voters there have voted to essentially defund the library because of uh, an argument about the content in it, uh, which included some LGBTQ-themed material. Uh, We would love to have you as part of the conversation as well. What do you make of a library being defunded for carrying LGBTQ material? Do you think this is uh, a restriction of free speech and expression? Uh, Do you think it's an overreaction to this kind of content? And what do you think is the purpose of a library? Is it to uh, give us information that we all agree is okay or that we agree with? Or is the library supposed to be kind of a marketplace of ideas where you might find things that you don't agree with or maybe might find just a little offensive. Uh, Of course, this is uh, a flashpoint right now in some of the arguments that we're having, of course, nationally about gender and gender identity, about sexual orientation. Uh, We are seeing uh, in the education sphere in particular uh, people taking extraordinary steps to prevent material of certain kinds from uh, getting to children or getting really to anyone. Uh, What do you think of that? Uh, Do you think uh, this is a reasonable way to run uh, a public service like a library, or should we be uh, thinking a little more open-mindedly about all of it? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. Um, there's been a counter-reaction, Ron, to the funding of the library with donations pouring in from all over the place. Uh, h- how much is that going to matter? And then talk a little about what voters could do there in November to try to save the library. Sure. Um, um, in the uh, 48 hours after the uh, uh, millage was defeated, um, two GoFundMe uh, uh, campaigns started, and uh, one of them said they'd hope to raise maybe five, ten thousand dollars. You know that that maybe the library could use to try to help out on, on costs. Uh, it, it, the library had lost about two hundred forty-five thousand dollars in this millage. It was it was scheduled to lose it, um, but uh, you know um, donations came pouring in uh, from as far away as Australia. Um, I looked this morning, and um, they're almost at $170,000 now. Um, now, that's, that's all exciting for people who, who want to try to do what they can to keep the library open, um, but it's not a long-term solution. They, they can't just take the, you know, find a way to get donations forever to keep the, light, the lights on and, and paying staff. Uh, in the end, this library will will either close or open, depending on what voters decide to do. Um, the millage that was defeated in August, the library board voted to try again in the November election and uh, ask voters again. Now, there is, you, you might say, well, it was defeated almost two to one just a couple months ago. What, what's going to make a difference? There's more understanding of the impact that, that a vote to uh, defund the library, uh, to, to defeat this millage could have. I, um, I think there's a better understanding that, that 
the library will actually close sometime in 2023. It was, it was defeated. And also, I spoke with several people who said their vote was a protest vote and that they understood that if this were on the, the ballot again in November, that it would likely pass. We will see. There's a lot of anger over there. A lot of people aren't talking to each other now. Um, so we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read a couple social media comments. Uh, Dave on Twitter says, I get the library stance if they gave into the demands and remove some books just because some religious people didn't like them. Where does that end? Libraries are a big part of communities for kids, adults, and seniors. We take our kids all the time. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, This library situation is a perfect example of how some conservatives will vote for things that aren't in their best interest because of the culture war. They dislike cancel culture. They are literally canceling their own library uh, to prove some arbitrary point. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, Let's start with Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stevens. Hey. This is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard of. One, I have been a mentor and guest speaker in some schools, and kids don't even have library cards. If they wanted this information, uh, with all the Internet availability, they could find it. You know, that's a great that's a great point, Bernadette. You know, getting something out of the library or closing the library certainly doesn't cut people off from from information. Um, but 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 Bernadette, let me let me ask you: Do, do you think that if the library were going to have content like this, uh, it, it, it should it should protect it from children or or keep it from children? I mean, do you do you think there is uh, I, I guess uh, uh, a point that the uh, that some of the the objections here are raising about who can who can access what uh, in a, in a public library. Are you still there, Bernadette? Actually, accessing this material, you know, uh, do do you from what you said on the show so far, adults are coming in and calling this material, mm-hmm. not kids. Yeah, yeah, uh, Bernadette. Appreciate the call and the perspective, uh, Ron. Talk about uh, again the library's efforts to to make sure, I guess, that uh, that kids did did not have access to this. But then also talk about the public service that this library, I guess, was serving more generally. What kind of place is this? I know that in a lot of small communities. The library isn't just a place for books and other material. It's a real community gathering space. And, and, and I guess if I lived in this West Michigan town, I'd be as concerned about that as, as, as everything else. That's a very good point, Steve. Um, yeah, the, 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 the book that started the, the whole issue uh, called Gender Queer, when um, some members of the community were concerned about it, um, they went through a normal process of, of, of uh, a review of the book. They have an uh, advisory board. And there was a decision made to keep it in the library, but they moved it behind the counter. Someone could still ask for it and, and check it out just like anyone else, but it's not on the shelf where, where, where kids could happen upon it. Um, some of the other books that have now, they've now raised concerns about uh, are still on shelves, um, but they're not as... Um, uh, they don't, they're not as explicit in, in, in their illustrations. But, but to see your point about like uh, what the library means, I think that's a really good point. Uh, it's, it's one of sort of cutting your nose off to spite your face type of things, because that for, especially in smaller communities, um, you're right, uh, and Bernadette's right, that, that, that obviously if someone wanted to find some material, they could find it on the Internet. But there are things that, that the library provides that can't be provided elsewhere. Um, for example, in this community, it's a rural community, um, you know, um, they provide Wi-Fi hotspots that you can check out, that you can take home, uh, so that you've got internet at home for a little bit. Um, they have a community room that is that that used by all sorts of groups. Um, that would close. Um, and also, anyone who then wants to use a library in a in a in a neighboring community that still has a public library, if this closes because there are no taxes then being being um, contributed to this collaborative, um, a, a resident of Jamestown Township, that a family from Jamestown Township would have to pay 
uh, a fee to be able to use mm. these other public libraries. Um, so it's, it, there, there are there are consequences that go well beyond uh, a couple of books, and and the hope is uh, residents now and the library officials can find a way to uh, work together yeah. uh, and, and and find a solution to this. Well, and, and I think you'd have to assume that let's say voters in November go and vote to you know to refund essentially uh, the library they're all going to have to sit down together and, and figure this out, right? There's still going to be people who are upset about uh, this content. They're going to have to have some sort of discussion, I guess, uh, and come up with uh, some sort of pa- policy and practice uh, that that stops people from, from being so upset about this. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's A lot has to do with communication and trust, and, and, and you know as well as I do that, that there's sort of a lack of trust in institutions at this point. Everyone thinks that the other side is in a conspiracy against them. Uh, these sort of books are not unusual. It's not like uh, uh, this library in Jamestown Township is the only library in the state that, that carries uh, this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, this could this could easily happen elsewhere. And so this is sort of a uh, uh, canary in a coal mine situation where uh, we should watch what happens here because it's probably coming to a neighborhood near you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Rachel in Detroit. Rachel, what's on your mind? Hi. Hey. Good morning. I, I think that this is really being done under the guise of, quote, unquote, protecting children. But it's really just a reason to discriminate against people. If they really wanted to, quote, unquote, protect children from explicit content, then this library wouldn't have any, you know, adult romance novels on the shelves. Why are those being, you know, out in the <laughs> open, so to speak? This is really just a way to. Yep, we lost Rachel's connection there, but uh, she'd already made, uh, I think, a really great point, which is that this is about this being gay content and not necessarily explicit content. I mean, there, there are people who, mm-hmm. who certainly would object to uh, other kinds of explicit content, but uh, but but here, this is about the fact that this is LGBTQ material. Is that right, Ron? Yeah, in fact, one of the organizers of the uh, Vote No campaign said this isn't a political issue, it's a biblical issue. Hmm. Wow. Um, that, that, so, you know, that, and to some extent, if that's where your, your perspective is, I understand why you would not want some of this material there. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it's very true that the, the, the director and then the interim director who took over both resigned over the past year. They both happen to be uh, members of the LGBTQ community, yeah. um, and and because they just felt like there was too much pressure on them. So yeah, it's definitely not not just about being explicit; it's about LGBTQ issues. Yeah, and and how big of uh, an issue is that in our politics right now in in Michigan, from your point of view? This this fight over gender identity over sexual orientation. Is this something that we're seeing play out, not just in fights about funding the library, but in in other parts of uh, our political system? Yeah, I think we are. Um, I think we're seeing it uh, either explicitly or implicitly in, in a lot of the language you see in uh, campaigns right now um, at all levels. Um, you know, um, there's, I mean, look at the you know, you see that in school board race. You're seeing this uh, particularly in, in schools, um, you know, you know the, about who uses what bathrooms, who can play on what sport teams, um, you know, and then that is being spun up to, like, uh, you know, uh, statewide races about uh, we have to protect our children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, so I, I, it, 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 it's whether it was started out with, with, with Good intentions. Who believe this is correct, or it's being used cynically? I don't know, but uh, it's 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 definitely an issue that is uh, pervading uh, the political realm right now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and in this township, uh, is there discussion of what they would do if they if they in fact lost the library and the impact it would have on that community? I'm really curious about families who who use it or or elderly people who use it is there is there discussion about what they would do 
Well, I, I can tell you that there are families that that's one of the reasons that the, this campaign, uh, fundraising campaign has gone so well, that they're very concerned about uh, losing their ability to go to the library and to go to story hour and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and uh, I don't, I, I think probably the campaign uh, going into the uh, uh, next millage in November, I think it's going to really focus on that. Uh, there, there wasn't much of a yes vote campaign <laughs> before because everyone assumed it would pass. Yeah. Uh, but uh, now I think there's going to be a lot of notice notifications to uh, residents about what they are likely to lose. Yeah, um, these services, and uh, you know, um, I don't. I haven't been back there for a couple of weeks, so I don't know if that's spun up yet. But uh, I think uh, that's going to be a big discussion here in October and November. Yeah. Okay, Ron French, uh, great uh, work on the story, and uh, thanks so much for being here with us on Detroit Today. We'll check in with you later uh, in the in the election cycle and, of course, after the election to see what happens uh, with this library. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk about the upcoming season for the Detroit Lions. And we'll also discuss a new podcast that highlights Isaiah Thomas and the history of No Crime Day here in Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.